Hi, I'm Alex Kashtan. And I'm Liz Borgay. We're Masters of Environmental Management candidates at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Today, we're speaking with James Cameron, an executive fellow with the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. James is currently a senior advisor at Systemic, and previously, he was the founder and chairman of Climate Change Capital, founder and head of the Climate Change Practice at Baker and McKenzie, chairman of the Carbon Disclosure Project, and founder of the Center for International Environmental Law. James has spent much of his legal career working on climate change. He helped negotiate the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the Kyoto Protocol as an advisor to the Alliance of Small Island States. He has also advised the past two presidencies of the climate change negotiations, Morocco for COP22 and Fiji for COP23. James, welcome. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for asking me. So that was quite a list of accomplishments and former positions that you've had. Uh, To start off with, do any of your professional experiences jump out as particularly informative or surprising? I think it's inevitable you go back to the beginning when asked a question like that. Uh, I feel like my colleagues and I, at the very beginning, when we founded the Center for International Environmental Law, when we raised money from the Ford Foundation and other foundations to do the work which led to the formation of the Alliance of Small Island States, the fact that we were the first as a group to imagine what an international agreement on climate change might look like and then do the work of displaying it in a a fully-fledged agreement and tabling it on day one of the negotiations in Chantilly, Virginia in 1991 on behalf of a country called Vanuatu, uh, I, th- I think that work was remarkable and probably possible because we didn't know why not. You know, we were very young. We 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 probably had a, an enthusiasm for an idealism for our work that resisted any attempts to be more pragmatic and wait for someone else to do it. Uh, so I, th- I think I think that work stands out, and even this week with the IPCC report on Monday coming out with the full scientific explanation of why 1.5 degrees is the right target to have. And then the next day, the agenda decision in The Hague, the Court of Appeal in The Hague, which used a lot of the language that we promoted all those years ago. I mean, it's it's 30 years of work. It's been a good week for making the connection between the science and the law and the, the arguments that we made all those years ago with uh, with the small island states. So can you describe what it was like to be an advisor to the presidencies of COPs 22 and 23? It's a very interesting role. The, the presidency has a huge obligation to bring together all the parties. Uh, when, when you accept the presidency role, you give up your individual country position and you exchange it for advocacy of the whole. You, you represent the interests of the whole group. You, you effectively have a mission to conclude negotiations at the end of your presidency successfully. Clearly, you have to define what that means. And in some instances, it's smart to have set relatively modest ambition given the experience of these negotiations over so many years. But what you do when you get the presidency is you 
you focus on how to get the best outcome for everybody. You then all use your diplomatic power to align interests, to further the the, the agenda, which has a kind of momentum of its own, um, set probably before you got the presidency. Morocco has a very, very good um, administration of their foreign affairs. They had uh, a very effective foreign minister who was you know, good at rallying the particular interests of both his own country and and the others who had attended Morocco. Morocco was a very high-level event. Heads of state attended. And they wanted to make it significant from an African perspective too as a, as a host on that continent. And they had a high ambition, uh, which the king took personal interest in and required um, our reports every day to to be sent to him of how progress was happening or not. So I, I think that Morocco is very a very significant gathering of powerful political interests. It was also significant because during the Moroccan session, uh, a certain election took place, which uh, led to a morning after feeling of quite significant shock and uh, despair. But we also produced good work, I thought, in Morocco. Uh, the proclamation, Marrakesh proclamation, contained some very good language. It, it, I would describe it as useful rhetoric. It was, it's a language of encouragement and it's forward-looking, it's positive, it, it recognizes that there is political momentum around fundamentally altering the way economies work. And that was done in the aftermath of the US election, and it demonstrated solid global agreement to carry on the implementation of the Paris Agreement the year before. And the role I had there with my colleagues was to support the chief negotiator and be, uh, if you like, the manager of all the other consultants that were used. Uh, Pretty much every government that takes on this role needs outside help. Uh, It's a very big task. And if you want to make the most of the role, you need outside help to connect the formal negotiations with all the surrounding events that go on in your in your host city. And if you're playing your domestic politics right, you want to show the connection between this major global event on your territory with things that matter at home, uh, things that make a difference to people's daily lives in, in the country that is the host. And I think we did a pretty good job together with the other consultants and together with the diplomatic staff and and, and we got a we got a good outcome. Now Fiji, Fiji was interesting on many levels. For me, it was personally very interesting because they are a member of the Alliance of Small Island States, and that's how I started out doing these negotiations on behalf of those most vulnerable island states. Fiji's also experienced really severe loss from cyclonic activity, really vicious cyclones that destroyed in one year, for example. Um, took took out a third of the GDP of the country. Not many countries could cope with that. So they had a solid moral base for their presidency. Uh, they had value symbolically as a small island state taking on the, the process, but they didn't have the resources. And so they were helped out by the Germans who said, well, why don't you bring the negotiations to Bonn where we have the 
Framework Convention Secretariat anyway, and we will help host the event, but but it'll be your event, and you can make it how you wish it to be. So the the group that we formed to advise that presidency was determined to ensure that we brought Fiji, its Pacific culture, its particular concerns, its particular vulnerability to Bonn, and we 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 hoped we I think we did change the culture of the event as president. Uh, and then, of course, we we had very particular arguments that we wanted to make to encourage the whole process to come to a, a conclusion that was successful. And one of the things we tried to do consistently was emphasize that in Paris we had also agreed to pursue as best we could a 1.5 degree target. And And I think when you look back over the Fiji presidency, that is one of the achievements that we did manage to get the 1.5 degree focus established. And we also brought innovation to the process by finding different ways of talking to each other through something called the Talanoa Dialogue, which I I have great hopes for in the future, but is still in its infancy. Essentially a way of getting delegates who have country positions to let go just a bit, enough to listen to others who might have solutions, bring those to the surface, use them as inspiration for developing your own national policies, and as such, through that process, by learning from the best examples around the world, raise your ambition when it comes to set your new targets when, between now and 2020. And what do you think might surprise people about working on COP negotiations? I do think we've, we've got to open the process up more. So one of the things that would surprise, I think, an observer is that negotiations are carried out as if the sovereign states are are the dominant actors in the uh, in the solutions to climate change. And whilst that's not a bad starting point, it's definitely not the end point. And so, in the in, in the last couple of years, probably before Paris, but certainly from Paris through to today, huge effort has been made to open up the process to non-state actors, sub-federal states, obviously there are NGO observers and ordinary citizens who can come and play a part. I thought Bonn this last time was good at integrating those who who did not sit on government delegations but had an interest in the outcome. But I, I fear there's still a long way to go and one of the things that you can observe if you, for example, as, as I do spend some of my time with the investment community, is that you can have a conversation about finance in those negotiations and really not involve anybody who actually does finance. Uh, that The talk is very much of public money moving to gov- from government to government and not nearly enough about who actually invests in making the transformation in our economies and why their interest might shift and how they might shift because of the work done at the international level in this huge and convoluted and complex process. Along the same vein, what do you wish most people knew about formulating international environmental policy? That's a very good question. I'd like people to know that the intergovernmental process is both essential and flawed, can be improved. Um, I'd like people to understand how hard it is to come to agreement, much of what I just said in answer to the previous question. So some respect for those who engage in that process. It's very demanding of time and expertise and personal endurance. I mean, lots of 
lots of late nights, and you need real commitment to that process to be successful. But equally, I think uh, we need to understand how the process has got to connect with people's ordinary, everyday needs and interests. That requires go-betweens, it requires effective politics to connect the global and the local. Uh, It requires um, enterprises of all different types to see how they might um, create value in whatever they do uh, whilst they're delivering on the objectives of this agreement, which is sometimes very abstract and very removed from day-to-day operations of a business. But you have to put some effort and some work in to understand, well, now, what does 1.5 degrees mean for me? I mean, why, why does that affect my day-to-day business? And if you ask and you concentrate hard on what others might know and put that knowledge together, you'll find uh, reasons to improve the efficiency of your business, to do something about your waste or your energy supply or, uh, or the, use circular economy methods to make sure that your production processes uses the uh, ingredients um, of your product more effectively Um, and on and on and on almost everybody can find a way of connecting this big global process with something that's more important to them the next day the other thing for those who are actually interested in that process and want to participate in it and maybe have policy ideas they want to advocate there are lessons that I think I could pass on one of them is from right back at the beginning when we when we actually did the job of writing out in advance what an international agreement would look like and tabled it. I mean, there's a straightforward lesson there. Do the work, imagine the outcome, and then ask yourself, how do we get there? It, it, it's, a, it's a common technique amongst those who, who, who practice law but also who, who understand policy processes or political processes. How did we get the best result that we imagined. And then it gives you some kind of strategy, outline strategy, and then you figure out, well, what are the tactics for getting there? Uh, You can also learn who's likely to oppose. You can map out the influences. And that takes a, a, a deal of effort. You need to be sure who your allies really are uh, what will they support, where the breaking points are, if you need to move positions, what will make them move, what do you have to offer them, uh, all at the same time of keeping keeping your eyes on the outcome. Uh, there's a danger in these negotiations, as there are in all negotiations, that they descend into uh, an I-win-you-lose structure. Perfectly useless in this context. Everyone who attends those negotiations has an interest in a successful outcome, by which I mean we solve the problem. It's not a success if you undermine the efforts of someone else to solve it. Uh, It's not a success if you trade off your particular country interest against some imagined other country interest and in so doing break the consensus that you need in order to have the whole process move on. And that's one of the reasons why it takes so long. and and why some negotiating styles are just not suited to this process. Shifting a little bit from the COP to just more open-ended topic, um, what do you think is the most pressing issue in environmental law or policy right now? We can't lose sight of the paramount objective of dealing with climate change. And there is no substitute but to basically mobilize every available resource you have 
financial, political, legal, uh, to create the right incentives, the right framework for millions of decisions taken every day to be in favor of solving the problem and to do so in a way that is create opportunity because I genuinely believe that it's not necessarily a burden. I mean, it's a challenge, a heroic challenge. I mean, I think it's an epic, epic in the sense of, you know, Greek legend epic um, uh, challenge to try and, and, and deal with this problem. But, but in it is real excitement because the technological innovation that we are experiencing, particularly perhaps in energy, uh, the convergence between uh, the digital economy, uh, renewable energy, storage, electric vehicles, these all of these technologies are converging really excitingly. So I see this as being an exciting, optimistic, positive response to a an imperative. The last time that we spoke with you was in October 2016, just a few weeks before the most recent American presidential election. With that in mind, uh, what makes you optimistic or not about the future of environmental policy, environmental action, uh, whatever whatever you'd like to address? I've spent all of my career, one way or another, uh, trying to confront abuse of power. It's the consistent theme. It's one of the things that links work that I've done on human rights with, with the environment. Um, it explains my steadfast belief in the rule of law and the absolutely essential function of law in any economic development too. Um, Law, justice, fairness, these critical elements of a good society are are the motivating forces for, for all of my work, even when it's been focused on climate and environment. And I am concerned Uh, now, and it's not just in this country, that there is either a laziness about the importance of the rule of law or a complacency about the capacity of our societies to absorb extremely destabilizing attacks on our institutions. And I'm afraid that um, if you don't watch it, environment gets um, put in a basket of measures that are supported by a liberal elite or seem to be supported by the other, the other side. And I've never, ever um, wanted the environment issue to be owned by one particular faction. There's no good reason for that. So um, my concerns are, all, are really all to do with how power is used or abused and the fear that environmental, good environmental regulation uh, will be withdrawn and people will suffer as a result. Having said all of that, there, there, there are checks and balances in, our, in this legal system and in others. Uh, there are counterweight movements. People of all political persuasions care about the environment, in fact. Uh, much of the uh, sometimes bizarre failure to acknowledge the facts of, say, climate change or air pollution even, comes not because of those facts, but because of the response to those facts. If you tell someone who hates regulation that the answer to the environment is more regulation, then they turn their eyes away from the environmental facts. They pretend they don't exist. So we have to do a much better job of communicating the, the, the range of interests in protecting the environment. We have to see the connection between conservation and conservatives. 
We need to understand that people value quality of life in various ways and appeal to those interests. And we have to be able to embrace business solutions, entrepreneurs who have answers that they may profit from. We can't be snobbish about the motivation that might lead to the outcome that we want. And building that kind of constituency of support is all the more important when it comes under threat. And it is under threat. We know it is. And I choose to be optimistic about that. Uh, I have a feeling that the capacity to self-organize is so strong, and it's strong in this country. It's definitely strong where I come from too, that uh, we will be able to properly represent the interests of the environment as our own, because we are a subset of it, that we will organize and motivate people to do whatever they can about climate change. And as a systems problem with system solutions, we should be excited about the exponential uh, growth in the technological solutions that we can see in front of us. And I'm quite sure that your generation is going to grasp those opportunities and drive them through, and we'll get past this particular moment. Great. Um, to finish up, uh, I have two quick questions that I like to ask on podcasts that are not necessarily related to the environment. Um, but the first one is, what is a book you would recommend? Uh, there's a fantastic book that I can strongly recommend to anybody who listens to this by a, a S- Swedish academic and and uh, a medic called Hans Rosling, who sadly has recently departed us. But Hans Rosling and his uh, family, really, daughter-in-law, um, son and daughter-in-law, um, have written this book called Factfulness. And Factfulness is a remarkable statement of uh, commitment to solid, grounded, well-researched facts and why, if you really know what's going on in the world, it's quite therapeutic. It's, it's better to know what's really going on rather than delude yourself or be um, misled by nonsense. Um, it, somehow this has popped into my head because of the last question you asked me. Uh, I started the Center for International Environmental Law uh, with two Americans, Derwood Zalki and Wendy Dinner, and a friend of mine from Cambridge called Philippe Sands, uh, Professor Philippe Sands, now. Uh, Philippe has written an incredible book called East West Street, which is really about the origins of international law on genocide and crimes against humanity. But it's also a fantastic detective story about what happened to the people who made the decisions that led to the uh, extraordinary uh, organized uh, campaign to eradicate Jewish people from the face of Europe, um, including Philippe's own family. And it's produced, uh, the book itself is remarkable. Um, It's a brilliant piece of writing. It's very exciting. It's full of telling lessons for us today. But it led also on to a film, a, a, a theater production, which is actually on in New York this weekend, Um, and a podcast uh, called The Rat Line, which is on BBC Radio 4 um, right now. And I think if I can recommend something for you to go and read that is right for our times, not directly relevant to the environment, but definitely relevant to abuse of power and human rights, go go get Philippe Sands' book, East West Street. Great. And then the second question is, uh, what kind of media are you consuming? That could be 
podcasts, music, magazines, website you always visit every day. Hmm, interesting. I uh, back in London, um, we we have we have some very very good media to draw upon every day. Um, the BBC is still a very useful public service broadcasting enterprise for all its faults. It's still a blessing that it exists. So I listen to Radio 4 and BBC World Service, which I would recommend to anybody you can listen to here at um, all hours. It's a fantastic music station called Six Music, Radio 6, um, brilliantly curated, lots of opportunity for DJs to play a wide variety of music, um, loved by other musicians, so you often get musicians doing their own programs on Six Music. I'm a I'm devoted to The Economist, uh, Prospect Magazine, uh, Monocle. I love Monocle, which is a great publication. I don't know whether it is. You can get it here. And also, Monocle 24 is a very good um, radio station with very good podcasts. Um, and, uh, yeah, the FT and The Guardian. I, I'm, I, I absorb an awful lot. <laughs> Some would say I'm somewhat obsessed with media and news outlet and newscasts. And th- I, I, you know, I'm, I'm always taking in information, and I'm fascinated by the range of opinion. I, I, one maybe maybe this is it's a good point to say. It's important not just to read the things you already agree with. So I I I also read publications that I don't agree with, and sometimes find really offensive. I I keep subscribing to newspapers in the UK where the editorial position has shifted and often concludes opinion writers who I loathe, but I read them anyway. And uh, I think that's important uh, to keep your critical faculties alive. Don't always turn to those who you already know you support. Uh, Go listen and learn from those who you either think you don't agree with or you're sure you don't agree with, but you still need to know what they're saying. Um, and I think that'll, that'll help us find some solutions to more complicated problems um, by uh, working with those who we disagree with. Absolutely. It's a good lesson. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.